You're listening to the best of the TomBernardShow.com, brought to you by Bradshaw and Bryant. Who, me? <laughs> well, I'd like to know if I was married to a horror piece of shit. <laughs> you could just look at her license. My. Special stripe. That was amazing. Oh, my gosh. Coming by sweet corn, potatoes, onions, pickles. It's not how you use them, sir. <laughs> it's really sickening that anybody would be into radio this much. It is ungoddamn believable. I think I'm going to hell. I just realized it. Thank you, Tom. You're just delicious. This is why I drink. We're here today with Michael Bryant, Brad, Sean Bryant. Michael, what's going on? You know, we keep getting phone calls, and it's interesting because people try to handle a lot of stuff on their own, or they try to talk to the adjusters, or they wait, um, and they think maybe it'll cost them money if they talk to me. And, you know, we tell them it's free to talk to us. Um, I go through what their rights are, and, you know, we try to help them as best we can. We don't sign everyone up. Sometimes I just give them advice, and they go from there and then call us back later. But the key is is that they don't know all their rights or they're not told all their rights by the adjuster. And that's one of the things we try to make sure that they get, you know, they get that understanding uh, so they can help themselves and their families the best they can. And the number is? Is 800-770-7008. Or at the website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Brad, Sean, Bryant, Michael Bryant, thank you. Seeking justice for the injured, Brad, Sean, Bryant. Welcome back, everybody, to yet another episode of the Best of the Tom Bernard Podcast, brought to you, as always, by Bradshaw and Bryant. Kicking off the show this week, we had Laura Wasser from her podcast, Divorce Sucks. I imagine she's right. Next on the Best of... Our listeners are unbelievable. Not, Joe and Doc got together. I grew up listening to classic rock, and now I listen to a half-rate morning show on some lame radio station hosted by this pill. Then Doc says, pill is right. Some days he's a sleeping pill. Other days he's a cyanide pill because he kills my spirit, bitch. Uh, Joe, see if you could find Shark Man and Grease Man Morning Zoo. We could listen to that. I think Tom's asleep. He's probably texting Bryant or Sprinthal. No time for us peons. <laughs> Unbelievable. Wow. Well. A couple of big babies. Well. It's kind of listeners I like, big babies. Ladies and gentlemen, Laura Wasser. How are you doing, Laura? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Marvelous. Uh, you're on Podcast One, correct? Podcast1.com, Divorce Sucks yeah. with Laura Wasser, W-A-S-S-E-R. Uh, so, Laura, where did it all start? <laughs> oh well, it all started uh probably back in uh nineteen sixty eight when my parents found out that my father had passed the bar exam and decided to have celebratory sex oh. and I was conceived and they decided because he passed the California bar exam to make my initials L A W. and and you were wondering where that was going, weren't you? No, anyway, no, so like I've I I did fight being an attorney for a long time, but ultimately I succumbed. 
and I've been practicing family law for 25 years now. Family law is a euphemism for divorce law. And last year, uh, Podcast One came to me and said, how about you do a weekly podcast about how people get divorced, how it works, what people's experiences are. You've represented some celebrities in your practice, so you can get them to come on and talk about it. And so because I was also launching an online divorce website called It's Over Easy, I figured that this would be a good way to kind of get the word out. So divorce sucks. Either that or have breakfast. It's over easy. That's good. I like it. There you go. That works for me. I've never had to go through a divorce, but I know some other people in the room have. And mm-hmm. I, I just, uh, like four or five times. Easy now, gunpowder. <laughs> <laughs> but it's got to be, man, i got to believe that's it's extremely emotional, isn't it? Or by the time they come to an mm-hmm. attorney, is it pretty much over already? Especially if you're attached to money. <laughs> then it's, really emo- <laughs> then it's yes. very emotional. It's extremely, <laughs> it's extremely emotional. Part of it is, you know, losing that attachment to your spouse. But yeah. the other part of it is losing your attachment to the money. What we're trying to do is, look, it definitely sucks. It's definitely difficult. It's, but it's definitely happening. And for those to whom it is happening, we're trying to make the the legal and the financial part easier. So you can deal with the grief of having, you know, the ending of that kind of a relationship and be able to move on. So many people get swept up in the emotions of it that they end up mm-hmm. spending way too much money on attorneys because they're in the moment. And so what we're trying to do is really separate that out, let people have the ability to heal and get through what is absolutely a crappy time, but not spend a bunch of money and negative energy on the actual legal process. Oh, I, I understand what you're saying completely. I used to work in a divorce attorney's office when I was going through college and I was, and you look, decided to get married. And I was looking through some of these files, <laughs> hey. and some of these files would be a conference room, you know, long box full of all of this stuff. It was just like, and then she threw a shrimp at me at our dinner party and embarrassed <laughs> me, and, and I'm like, this is what you're telling an attorney this for for seven hundred dollars an hour. You're going through, you know, the the dinner party fight. Really? I mean, it was just. I mean, they would drag it's the crazy. stuff. It's crazy. Yes. And I think so many people after it's over look back and go, what was I thinking? Yeah. Why did I have my attorney write a three-page letter about the shrimp throwing? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because you're emotional, you, you, that happens. And the problem is, and again, I, I have great colleagues. I love family law attorneys. We are all problem solvers. We're trying to get it done. But, you know, so often when people come into my office, I go, let's be really clear about this. The more you fight, the more money I make. And, mm-hmm. dude, I yeah. already drive a Porsche, so let's figure out a way to get you out of this without having to write a three-page letter about the shrimp-throwing incident or any... I mean, there's so many other things. Right. I, I mean, I, even, I, even extramarital affairs, which are horrible, talk to your therapist, talk to your priest, talk to your rabbi, talk to your girlfriend over a glass of Chardonnay. Don't talk to your lawyer. Right. I, I have a question for you. How? What percentage of the... Uh, cases is uh, arbitration successful? And I, and I know a lot of, of couples go that route prior to seeing an attorney. I did it myself, actually. I'm just curious as to what your experience is with arbitration. I think it's, I mean, it probably differs from state to state. In California, where I practice, we are much more mediation or arbitration oriented. And I'd say probably about 80%. I think if oh, wow. people are kind of 
hip to it and aware of it, it works. Because what happens is you have this opportunity to air your grievances, talk about what's gone on. You're not in front of a judge or in front of like a neutral third party. You get that out of your system. You also kind of compile and exchange the financial information necessary and you make a deal. And so what we're really trying to do at It's Over Easy and at Divorce Sucks is make that, educate people as to that as a possibility and to a different way of doing things. We call it the evolution of dissolution. And again, what struck me is I've been practicing for 25 years. Very little has changed. We're still dealing with, remember the movie Kramer versus Kramer? We're still dealing with these horrible knockdown, drag out. And again, it's not just financially taxing. It's emotionally devastating if you can approach it from a different angle, which is, hey, this is horrible, but it's happening. How do we do this in a way that we're going to save our money and, more importantly, save our kids, having well-adjusted children that are able to go back and forth? When, when you know, my kid was in kindergarten, his dad and I were the only parents in the class that weren't living under the same roof. By fourth grade, I think 40% of the class, the parents have split yeah. up. So it's happening. Sure. How do we do it better? You know, I actually have a friend. I, uh, I've been a friend for a long time, and there was a lot of dough involved in this, and I understand that. Took him 14 years to get divorced. Oh, my. 14 wow. I mean, years. Isn't that crazy? Uh, yeah, no, we've, we've seen those. You can be married like three that or four times. That means somebody's doing something years. wrong. You should know. <laughs> yeah, some, somebody's doing something wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. How long were they married? Uh, for quite some time. He before they okay. filed for divorce. Yeah, I think I yeah. think at least twenty twenty five years. Wow. They were married a long time, but he, there was a lot of money involved, and that was the mm-hmm. whole problem. I think. Yeah, but here's the thing: more money, money there, it should be easier with more money. Yeah, you yeah. would think. I mean, it should right. be like, look, we've both got plenty of money. Let's move on. Yeah, exactly. Jeff Bezos yeah. got divorced in what about fifteen minutes? Fifteen yeah. minutes. Yeah. Yeah, what, 47 exactly. billion? Yeah. I have, I'm 30, and I already have two friends that are divorced. Really? Mm-hmm. You do? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so do you think that prenups help when there is a divorce? I do. I actually think prenups help people stay together, to be honest with you. And I know that. I mean, well, look, I go. know they're not romantic. I know they're not sexy. But I think one of the things we're reading a lot about now is how, like, millennials are not getting married. Um, or millennials are getting married later, and that's why the divorce rate is decreasing. Um, I think that's great. I also think that millennials are having more prenups, not just wealthy millennials, but people that just they're smart and they want to know what the law is in their state and they want to know what the terms of this contract that they're entering into and marriage is a contract. Everyone says, oh God, I can't believe you're entering into a contract. Marriage is a contract. People get married and they enter into contracts for the venue and the cake and the dress and the florist and the caterer, but they never think about the most important contract, which is the contract of marriage. Find out what the law is in your state, and if you are down with those rules. If you're not, then let's talk about how you opt out and what you would prefer in terms of what your financial situation is going to be, your responsibilities during marriage. There's some things you can't opt out of. You can't opt out of child support, for example, but you can certainly opt out of like a community property situation where you get married in California and automatically half of everything you earn from that day forward is half and half. You can say that doesn't work for me because I've already been doing my job for this long and I really honed my art or whatever it is and I don't want to pay half or share half of everything I earn with the person that I'm married to. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Now, I, I want to run a little experiment here, Laura, okay? The woman you were talking yes. to there is is my wife. The Catherine. woman named yeah, Catherine. I had a feeling about that. Woman. That's Catherine? That's Catherine. Yes, hi. Absolutely. <laughs> so I will say this, and then she can follow it up with her comment. Uh, we've been together for 38 years, been married for 35 years, and I've never even once considered divorce. And now here's Catherine. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's so th- many times. It's Thursday. <laughs> yeah, it's Thursday, honey. So many Go times. Go forward. What do you no. mean so many times? What's that oh, all about? Oh, you've been hanging by a thread for many times. <laughs> and you know, that, and you you know guys, those 30, times. 35 years in my world, that's quite an accomplishment. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. I have a, it is a hard job yeah. to be married, but it is often so worth it. But I do. I think... Obviously, you guys have found something that you, a common ground, you obviously have good communication with each other. That's so key in terms of keeping things fluid and keeping things evolving, and it's really important. I mean, I probably know about as much as marriage as I do about divorce, and I've seen so many relationships, 35 years and 38 together. That's awesome. Thank you very much. I I have another question. I had a friend that went through mediation, and she found out later that her ex was had hidden tons of assets going into mediation. What happens then? In most states, there are omitted assets. First of all, when you enter into mediation, you still have to sign exchange and, and under penalty of perjury, um, exchange information about what you each have. So if that person, her husband signed all those forms under penalty of perjury. He, one, broke the law when he said that these assets didn't exist or... We're losing you. Doubt is The judge, if you come forward and say, well, he didn't tell me he had this bank account offshore, I found out later, the judge will either then give a heavy, heavy penalty to the person that omitted the assets. I've seen instances where the judge awarded the entire asset, not just half of it, Ooh. to the other spouse. So not so worth lying. No, no. Not worth lying. Yeah. Not worth lying. And again, these days more than ever, it's very hard to hide assets. Because yeah. there's this sure. electronic footprint that you have of everything. I mean, back right. in the day when everything was in like a shoebox, receipts. But now you can usually see everything that's come out over time. And if a big chunk of money was supposed to come in and didn't show up or got transferred, you see that. Well, that's good because, I mean, she was so exhausted by the whole thing. She was just, by the time they were divorced, she was just so exhausted. I don't even think she cared anymore, to tell you the truth. It's just like, I can't even deal with this person one more day in my life. Yeah. So we got away with it. Exactly. After a certain period of time, you're just like, I'm so done. I want to, I'm out. And that's why I feel like if you start from a point of ex, from education, understanding, and really wanting to get into it, you have to be the master of your own destiny. And hopefully it doesn't, it doesn't go on for that long. Because, yeah, it does. It taps you out. Because we've got a couple in here that are going to be married in October. Mm-hmm. They're fiancés, and they're right here. So do you have any, what's, what's the best advice? Get a prenup? <laughs> 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 Even if you don't have a prenup, because they're not for everybody, I would have some of the conversations that would go into having a prenup. What do you? What are each of your expectations after you get married? Um, what, what? How much you're going to put away every year for retirement? Have you discussed what happens with your 
elderly parents, are they going to come live with you? Or are you going to put them in assisted living? No. What do you think is going to happen if you have kids? <laughs> is somebody going to go, are you both going back to work? Some of these things, sit down, map through them, plan them out, and really talk about them. And the other thing I would say is, while you guys are madly in love and have stars in your eyes, figure out a great way to communicate so that when things aren't good, and inevitably, um, as Tom and Catherine will tell you, that sometimes they won't be good, you have a really good ability and language to speak with each other and communicate with each other. Get that down while things are good. And I think that you will probably do great. I think that's wonderful advice. Because mm-hmm. communication is like 90% of a marriage, yes. oh, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Dan and I took, my husband and I took a premarital counseling class at the church we got married in. And we had to take a quiz and we found out that he is an internal processor and I'm an external processor which makes can make things yeah. hard but like learning that ahead of time was huge just yes. knowing that like this is how he processes things he can't talk and talk and talk but I have to talk and talk and talk hmm. yeah I'm the same way yeah. I like to purge yep. everything so the best way to do it is just communicate with them say look I'm not ready yeah. to talk about this yeah, right exactly. now exactly give me yeah, my time, mm-hmm. and then I will come to you when I'm ready. If you're yeah. Tom Bernard, you say, "Well, I am ready to talk right now." <laughs> Do you like it or not? There will be talking. <laughs> but isn't it isn't it amazing that they don't make you take those premarital classes? Like I remember yeah. that scene in Parenthood oh, where Keanu Reeves says, "You know, you need a license to drive, you need mm-hmm. a license to fish, yep. but any guy can become a parent." It's the same to get married. I mean, you need a marriage license, but they don't put you through any hoops oh, to get it. It's, hey, like, you can get like huge. 25 so cents many, off. So many people would stay married. <laughs> so, yeah. Laura, yeah. Laura, do you well, have to get going? Do you yes. have time to stick around? Oh, you do have to get going? Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I'd love to have you on again to talk about this, because apparently my wife loves to talk to divorce attorneys. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Laura. She's yeah, just, just exploring her options. Podcast one, Divorce Sucks, Laura Wasser, W-A-S-S-E-R. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, guys. Bye. Best of the Tom Bernard Podcast. on the best of coming up next on a well equally depressing note Anita Anand calls in to discuss her book full of intrigue revenge murder next on the best of The book, The Patient Assassin, A True Tale of Massacre, Revenge, and India's Quest for Independence. Anita, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Chat, how are you? I'm wonderful, thank you very much. 
the dramatic true story of a celebrated young survivor of a 1919 British massacre in India and his ferocious uh, 20-year campaign of revenge that made him a hero to hundreds of millions and spawned a classic legend. That's about as far as I want to read into it, Anita, because I want to hear your take on the entire thing, The Patient Assassin. Sure. Well, as you quite rightly say, the, the start, the seed of all of this is a terrible massacre that happened in India in 1919, so 100 years ago. The British were still in charge, and there was a cry coming from the Indians, which I guess you Americans are all too familiar with, which was no taxation without representation. Indians were asking for a bit more of a voice right. in their affairs. And this was seen as an affront. This was seen as a challenge to British rule, and so they were cracking down and cracking down hard. Um, a brigadier general drove an armed convoy to this walled garden in the north of India in a city called Amritsar. He drove, he would have taken his machine gun mounted cars in if the entrance was wide enough, but there was only one entrance and it was so narrow, three men abreast couldn't come through it. He orders 50 riflemen in, he issues no warning, and he tells them to fire on 20,000 unarmed men, women, and children. And they are shot like fish in a barrel. They can't get out. They're unarmed, they are civilians, and their bodies pile up in in pyramids by the walls as they're desperate to try and get out. There's one well in the middle of the garden and people throw their loved ones in to try and get away from this hail of bullets. And in India, there's this this legend that everybody knows, it's unknown beyond India, of a young orphan, low caste, who has nothing to his name, but he is trapped in that garden. He gets winged by a bullet. And the British compound this atrocity by declaring a curfew that night so nobody can come in and give medical aid to the people who are bleeding out all night and no one can get the bodies out. And this young man has to stay in that garden all night, listening to the wailing, turning into whimpering, turning into silence around him. And he scoops up a handful of earth as the first rays of sun hit the ground, and it's heavy with blood, and he smears it across his head, and he says, no matter how long it takes, no matter where it takes me, I am going to kill the men who did this with as little mercy as they've shown my people. And he is the patient assassin, Udun Singh, and it is his story about a 20-year transformation, how he turns himself into the perfect assassin who can walk into a hall in London in 1940 and carry out his vengeance. That is what an amazing story. This. Why is it, because I've never heard this before, is, is this a well-known story? Well, it's, it's one of those peculiar things that it is, it is in the DNA of the north of India. Um, right, I mean, I right. was born... In, in Britain, uh, my name, Anand, means joy, and my, it will give you an indication that, that actually my family comes from the north of India. They come from Punjab, this, this province. So in India, this is known. Uh, Udham Singh, the avenging angel, is like a hero in India. His face has been on stamps. Streets are named after him. But in Britain, he's completely unknown. But then Britain also doesn't like to remember the massacre. You know, it, sure. it has to be poked right. and prodded into remembering. Um, you know... <laughs> If, if things were left to um, the way they have been in the past, all that the Raj would mean is sort of polo matches with Maharajas and elephant hunts. But this ugly side of things is never mentioned. So um, in writing this book, I had to uncover documents that had been buried for over 100 years. You know, so many files that had top secret written on them, things that needed freedom of information requests to kind of prize them out of, out of the hands of archives. And you piece together, um, I don't know whether you guys are familiar with Tom Ripley, you know, um, this this fictional character who 
Well, he is the real deal. He's the real Ripley because he has nothing. He knows nothing. He's uneducated. He's low caste, which, I mean, it may not mean much these days and particularly in America, but in, in a country where the native population were deemed to be less than human or less than white human, the lower caste were right at the bottom, and he is at the bottom. Hardly educated, no money, an orphan, low caste. How is he going to turn himself into a man who can attack and kill the most powerful people in the Raj? Well, he does it by following this slipstream, my enemy's enemy is my friend. Whoever hates the British as much as he does, he will learn from them. And one of his major universities that teaches him his craft happens to be America. Um, he travels to the United States where there are lots of dissident Indians who've been forced to flee. They, they gather around California, around Stockton in particular. Mm, okay. And he learns from them. He learns how to travel on false passports, to get hold of guns, to shoot straight. He goes to Russia. He learns from the communists. He goes to Germany, where Hitler is starting to ascend. He will learn from anyone who will teach him. And in America, actually, he gets, a really, he gets his only chance in life to be happy. Uh, he, he finds a, he, he dreams the American dream for a while. He's there for a few years. You know, he finds a wife. He settles down. He has two children. But, he, you know, the fable, the princess and the pea, mm. always, like a little pea under his mattress, is this, this, this vow that he made that he would get revenge. And it stops him. He jettisons his wife and his children, and he just keeps going till he can get to London, till he can get close, until he can do what he needs to do. It is an amazing story, because first of all, we sit here, uh, and of course, you, you talk about Adolf Hitler and Mao Zedong allowing millions and millions of people to die, and in this case, uh, Michael O'Dwyer, I don't, so he, he must have considered them less than human, I, I assume. Yeah, he, he did. Uh, you know, he loved India, but he loved the, the British bits of India. As far as the native population, the, the actual brown-skinned Indians were concerned, he, was, he categorized them almost like a botanist categorizes poisonous species, and he generalized about them. You know. And the type of Indian he hated most of all was the type that was represented by men like Gandhi, who were educated, who were high caste, educated, had traveled to Britain and had learned how to speak and walk and talk mm -hmm. in the same way as he and his compatriots. And he found them to be upstarts. He found them to be ungrateful. He found them to be reaching beyond their station. So what happens in 1919, up till that point, all men like Gandhi are asking for is just give us some voice. They're not asking the British to leave, and they're not asking for control. Mm -hmm. They're just saying, give us some voice in our future. You know, our 1919, that moment in 1919, that massacre, I think is as pivotal as an incident that happened in your country in Boston when people tipped tea over into right, a harbor right. because people just said no more you've got to go now you've just got to get out that makes total sense to me by the way it's like yeah okay you just hang in there and we're going to do nothing for you and you're going to take it uh human beings are generally not going to deal with that kind of thing well um you know the amazing thing is when you look at that whole situation although it's worked in asia for many many years particularly in Japan, places like that, your station is very important, and there's, at least that I know of, there's not a whole lot of violence based in that. A lot of people do believe in, you know, being above or below your station and all the rest of it. Uh, it's worked in other countries. It doesn't seem to work in Europe or the United States or, you know, places like that. 
I, I just, you know, this whole, we kind of need to go through that right now in America because of our past history with slavery and all the rest of it. Some people have decided, and these are white people, by the way, that are doing this. They decided because of slavery 200 years ago, the 400, 500, 600 years ago, that now white men are evil. It's like these white men had nothing to do with slavery. You can't just point your finger at them because they're the same color and gender as the people who did do it. It doesn't make any sense to us. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot that has been said about um, an apology for this. And, and I have to tell you, I, have a, I also have a personal connection to the story because um, I didn't mention this at the beginning, but my grandfather was in the garden on the day of the massacre. Oh, really? And, yeah, and by some quirk, you know, just stupid, dumb luck, he leaves the garden and leaves his two friends behind and says, mm. look, I'm just going to go to the market. I've got to do... He was, he was from out of town. He wasn't political. It was on the biggest festival day of the year. So he, like many hundreds and thousands of others, had poured into the city to give thanks to the Golden Temple, which is the great landmark in Amritsar. Mm. And he uh, leaves his friends and he says, look, I'll be back. Just keep my food. Just don't eat all of it. I'll be back in a few minutes. He passes the armed column in the street, goes to the market, and he only knows what's happened when the, the sound of screaming reaches him in the market. Oh, God. And he rushes back. He can't get in because of the curfew, and he has to wait till morning until he can find out that both of his friends are dead. Um, and that really affected him. You know, he lived with survivor's guilt. For somebody like Udham Singh, you know, this massacre was pivotal and it turned him into a murderer. It turned him into an assassin. It turned mm -hmm. him into somebody who wanted to, you know, the equalizer. So my grandfather, you know, we call it PTSD now, but they didn't have a name for it then. Uh, he went blind very early in life and he used to rage against anyone who gave him any sympathy. He said, look, do not feel sorry for me. God gave me my life that day. It's only right he take the light from my eyes. So you know, I, I'm kind of I'm <laughs> I'm in this story. This story is my yeah, story yeah. as well. And and pe people ask me, you know, they say, do you want an apology? And there's been much made of an apology. Um, and it's an odd thing. I'll share a story with you very quickly. But I, somebody gave me the number for the brigadier general who marched his soldiers in an open fire uh, for his granddaughter and said, look, you know, do you want to talk to her? And I said, actually, no, I really don't. Not until I finish the book, because if I like her, it's going to mm -hmm. change the way I write about yeah, this. And if true. I don't like her, it'll yeah. change the way. Yep. So I waited until I found it in the last draft, and then I rang her up, and I said, look, um, and I, I, I'm a radio uh, presenter here. And I said, look, this is my, I'm Anita Anand. And she said, oh, I know you from the radio. I said, oh, that's not why I'm ringing. I'm ringing because your grandfather tried to kill my grandfather. Do you want a cup of tea? And uh, we met, and we talked for two hours, and she was completely unrepentant about what he had done oh, and, and really? believed that it was yeah it was it was a, the hardest two hours i think of my life and in, in the middle of it and i did like it she's a very charismatic woman and in the middle of it i i you know she said what do you want from me do you want me to apologize and i said well and i didn't know what i wanted until that moment i thought actually no i don't it means nothing my grandfather's dead his friends are dead even longer it doesn't mean anything but what i want i think for my children is for the story to be told mm -hmm. and for her to understand. And I said, look, I really, I think one thing I would like from you, not an apology, but I'd like you to come with me and come and see the garden and come and see what happened for, for yourself. And so, you know, to her credit, she said, I will come. So, you know, that's something, that's another difficult horizon that we will cross at some point in the near future, I hope. That's an amazing story. So you, you think you actually, she actually will show and go with you? Yeah, I think she will. I mean, I think, you know, it was... It is challenging. It is a, it's a challenging thing to accept. And, you know, you're, you're 
talking about collective guilt, you know, there's also collective denial, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was trying to show her and tell her about documents that exist, documents, eyewitnesses from her, you know, her ancestor's side from an inquiry that took place in 1920 and saying, look, you know, these were unarmed. You know, the youngest victim of this massacre, the reason it caused this kind of rage that, you know, then motivates the patient assassin to devote 20 years of his life to, to changing who he is, to everything directed into, into killing somebody, to, mm-hmm. to, you know, even this score. And I was trying to, to tell her, you know, look, the youngest victim was eight months old. The oldest victim was 80 years old. Oh, you know, how can you imagine that they are guilty of anything um and and so i think you know there's denial and there's education so you know to come back in a very circuitous way i didn't need an apology and i didn't hold her responsible but what i do want is for people to know the truth that's what i want see it's a wonderful thing and it's wonderful that you don't need an apology from her um because some people, I, I, I don't know why, but they absolutely need you to apologize and, and basically grovel when this had nothing to do with her. And you realize that it would be nice to have an apology because she's a descendant, but you're not, you know, trashing her all over the uh, all over the planet. It seems to me you're doing your best to try to understand and try to get along and all you want is an apology. And I, I think that's only right. It's, it's, an ex, it's, it's an acceptance of truth. Yep. I think that's what matters. You know, you know, there's that old saying that if you don't learn from history, you're cursed to repeat again and again and again. And I know, you know, I'm not, I'm, I don't by any means represent um, all the people who have been touched by this. I know in India there are a great number of people who feel this hurt deeply still. You know, it is, it is, a, it is a wound. It is, it's not so long ago. Look, I mean... You know, we're not talking ancient history. We've just here in Britain, and I'm sure you have mm-hmm. too, um, commemorated the end of World War One. You know, right. centenary. We make a big deal of that. This is, you know, not a long time ago, and yet this also happened a hundred years ago. Yeah. This is also not such a long time ago. So it would be rather marvellous to say, you know what, um, this did happen. And to, 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 to some Indians, I know they would like to have some kind of you know, acknowledgement on a, on a senior level, not from the British people. And even with them saying, actually, the man, the, the patient assassin, he is, uh, he's eventually, you know, dragged into court for what he, what he did. And what he did was, by the way, completely audacious. The man turns into, you know, almost a ghost and uses everything he's ever learned for this one moment in 1940 when Britain is in the grip of World War Two. you know, when there should be such a heightened sense of security, he walks into a hall filled with the great and the good of the Raj, including the Secretary of State for India, and this man, Michael O'Dwyer, and comes face to face with him for the first time, Ooh. this man he's been obsessed with for 20 years. Uh, but, you know, I won't tell you what happens. No, no, but it's extraordinary. don't do that. Operatic, <laughs> you know. But, you know, he, he, he does, he does when he's on trial, he does actually say, I have nothing against the British people. I have nothing against the working man. This is not about that, but this is about tyranny. Um, mm. And that's, you know, that's what he, what he said, even then, in the heat of all of that. Anita Anada, it's A-N-A-D-A. The book is called The Patient Assassin. Oh, no, it's Anita Anand, my lovely. It's Anand, A-N-A-N-D. Anand. I think you've got a typo. Yeah, the that calendar's would be quite got a, a mouthful. Oh, the calendar has a typo. <laughs> yeah. There's an A at the end of it, so it's Anand. Yeah, no, that's, I, I don't deserve the extra vowel. Take it away. <laughs> <laughs> I will take your vowel away. Anita, thank you so okay. much. The Patient Assassin, A True Tale of Massacre, Revenge, and India's Quest for Independence. Anita, thank you very much. Great, great subject. A pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.
best of the Tom Bernard podcast. That was Anita Anand on the best of. Coming up next, closing out the show, we're opening up the old vault. All the way back to episode 274 with Bob Enfield, co-founder of Tommy Bahama. Next on the best of. So we won't mention the uh, the friend's name, but uh, Bob Enfield walks in. Uh, my back was turned to the front door, so Bob and Lori walk in. And he said, oh, I think your guests are here. I said, oh, good. So I turned around and he said, so who's your guest today? And I said, you know, Bob and Lori, blah, 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 the whole deal with the co-founder of Tommy Bahama, blah, blah, blah. And he says, well, I was going to go out on a date last night. Couldn't find a, uh, a shirt that fits, so I had to go out and buy a brand new Tommy Bahama shirt. <laughs> <laughs> because thanks for your help, Don. That was great of you. He's I'm very busy. busy. He's got his new. He's got his new thingy. He's got his new iPad with his little keyboard. Look at him. <laughs> start going Look at him over there, all high tech. Are you wearing a Tommy Bahama shirt? Yes, I think it is. Yeah, I, I Everybody's always wearing a Tommy Bahama shirt. Yeah. You suck up. <laughs> I didn't even know Bob was going he to be didn't here. Know. I literally didn't wear one because I wear. That's all I wear <laughs> I are M Fielder shirts. Sure. That's yeah. all I wear. Yeah. So I wore a T-shirt just to, and and Seminole shirts. Yes, yes, and Seminole shirts too. Yeah. Uh, today I went to uh, went to uh, Whole Foods. And wearing a Seminole T-shirt with a Mayaku Indian hat, they were looking at me like, "You shouldn't be here. You don't fit in. You don't. Fit. You're not one of us. Did you You'll say, never fit in." Did you say, "Do you have maize?" <laughs> Pardon me. Do you have maize? And they would say, "Right here, sir. Twelve dollars okay, a pound. It's right down next to the wild <laughs> rice." <laughs> Hey, I, I put on Facebook that um, Bob Enfield was going to be on today, and Luth Lorden. She said that uh, she wants to see a Tommy Barnada. Oh boy! Oh, Line nice. with Minnesota, anyway. Minnesota motifs. What do you anyway. think? What do you think? That plays. <laughs> you like it? Yeah, there's room for that. <laughs> have to have a little Zuba sort of tribute. He wore those nonstop. Bob's got for the lingo too. Years. Bob says he does That play. plays. <laughs> oh, he's that, always saying yeah, things like that. That'll play. That'll play in that space. Honestly, Andy, would you ask Sean about this for me, please? Alex, hand that to and, that, that Andy. No, let, me, let me get my hands on it so I can be a pal. Okay. There we go. <laughs> Finally, Don Shelby contributes something. Ask him what? Uh, if it's scheduled. Everything's scheduled yes. except for they changed the 415 well, in spot. I do not see it up there anywhere. I'll ask. Oh. Thank you. Let, let well, me there's know. a new copy coming in. No, that's it's being Gillette. written. No, there's one being written right no, now. No, no, it's Gillette. That's oh, the one sorry. I just got. Okay. Right. That's how we all said. That's one great thing about podcasts is you don't have to do anything like, you know, like it's professional. Plan. Like plan. <laughs> uh, I was just going to run quick. So Bob Enfield's here. And Lori, I don't even know if you go. What's, oh, yeah. The, Lori you go Enfield. by Enfield. You okay, go. I just didn't know because Catherine refused. I see. Well, look what I've right. got here. Yeah. <laughs> Would you want to be associated with this character? So it is scheduled. I have to do everything on the fly around here. Yeah. It be okay, you want me to do it? You want 45 first. 
or you want me to do it four fifteen second? Four fifteen second. Okay, and then and then the one that's four fifteen second now should go to third. Third. Mike just. No, took we're another, not running three spots in a row. No way. Okay, See, all right. No, we'll Mike from Blaine just took another hit off the bong because of <laughs> this conversation here. Well, again, <laughs> it, things. Listen, oh, we, uh, I well, I, I could probably we could probably announce that for the first time in the history of the Tom Bernard ca- podcast, we we oversold an hour. <laughs> <laughs> We oversold. We did. We oversold. What's it? Do you think it's something we should talk about on on the podcast, Sean? That no one's ever attempted this venture before in history, and it's going very well. No one's one's ever podcast. Do that when we don't have these nice guests around. No, no, that's what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, we and Bob knows that Bob and I talk all the time about business and things like that, and Rocky Patel cigars and golf. And where the hell's my free shirt then? Jeff, Jeff Richter's wearing it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let me get these things in order then. Okay, we got the. All right, Andy, so you know not to run. Should we talk about something interesting? Yeah, when do I? <laughs> this is thrilling. What do you mean? I, look, I looked up the schedule and I didn't see something scheduled. I have to do everything. That's all I'm telling. <laughs> you don't you have to do the yourself. news. Hey. No, Ted do the news. does the news for you. You don't have to do it. <sighs> yes, you can relax. I, I do want to mention in the news. So did I make it clear, Bob M. Phil and Laurie M. Phil are co-founder co- of Tommy Bahama. Mayhem, I tell you. It's going to be a fast. Oh, we have to get moving because you have to leave here in 35 minutes. Are you going to do the news? I can do uh, brief headlines. I just like to point out yes. the greatest speeches ever made. Queen Elizabeth, her, her speech, uh, Patrick Henry, he's in there, now famous for having a high school in North Minneapolis. Sojourner Truth. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Abraham Lincoln. Ah, that was kind of boring. Oh, the second <laughs> inaugural. That was great. Susan B. Anthony. By the way, I have never seen a picture, I have never seen a picture of Susan B. Anthony before. Are you sure that's not Anthony B. Susan? Because <laughs> Susan B. Anthony, all right. She'd be a lot Let's of guys. Let's not pick on world icons. Yeah. That, that picture was taken on a windy day. <laughs> well, hey, you know, Susan B. Anthony, you goddamn right. Sorry. Don, why do you encourage him? (laughs) Bob, I will tell you, you know Don forever, right? We have fun. The worst combination in the history of broadcasting was the two of us together. It's terrible. It's really bad. I say dirty words a lot, a lot on this uh, podcast. On the podcast? On the podcast. Mm -hmm. You can. You can say dirty words. (laughs) And so I don't want you to say any. Leave it to me. And I won't know that you've done it because I don't hear very well. (laughs) Well, there you go. Well, good. Why don't you go fuck yourself? (laughs) Well. Well, I knew it was coming. There it is. Did he say go fuck myself? Pretty sure. Just for fun. No, I don't know. It's always just a fun time. Like dinner conversation. He asked Lori. He looks at Lori and goes, did he just say go fuck yourself? (laughs) Yeah, she went. Yeah. Well, I suppose you edit the content before this is. No, aired. no, no, no. No, we do not. Hell no. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I, yes. The, so, Bob, I've known you what for twenty years, something like that. Easy. Yeah, twenty-four, twenty-five from golfing. Yeah, twenty-four, twenty-five. Is that why? Maybe. Yes, of course. Bob was uh, was in a group. Uh, Richard D'Amico was always there. Uh, Paul Majors, pretty much. Yeah, Paul was a lot there. of time. I was trying to think who else used to play. Passel would play Bassel, once in a while. Once in a while, that's right. He would be in there. But so Bob and I have been talking about 
business stuff for a quarter of a century now. And that was before you started Tommy Bahama when? 1991. Oh, so that's when, okay. when we started the, the company. So it was, yeah, like three years before you even started Tommy Bahama that I met you. Mm-hmm. Because I think, uh, remember Hypercolor? Yes, you had that weird... Whoa. <laughs> <huh>? <laughs> Stuff. That, that's a blast from the past. Absolutely. You wore Hypercolor? I... I no, believe... They, they I didn't be- have one in 2XB, so I, see. I did not wear Hypercolor. I think you had some shorts. I don't know if I got them. I got them from Bob. I, I I, maybe that. they were prototypes. Actually, I'm not so sure that Hypercolor <laughs> wouldn't work over again in this marketplace. Well, no, I agree. Because nobody's seen it for 25 years. That's true. It would be mm. new. Yeah, don't tell anybody that, though, huh? Cats <laughs> out of the bag. <laughs> the, oh, wait, we can edit this. The dye stuffs were really hard to work with, though. Be, for every 100 we made, we had to throw 50 away. The, oh. The, but if you have a shirt that's purple and you blow on it and the shirt turns pink, mm-hmm. you know, the, those dye stuffs are hard to work with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. <laughs> I could see that. I would yeah. guess uh, today that <laughs> some credible source would look at this and say, people can't wear this. This will take their skin off. Yeah, that's not good. <laughs> that's probably not a good. Uh, no, that's oh, a, prob- I do, probably not a good comeback. I do remember you the first time you showed it to me, though, and it was like 25 years ago. The, the shirt would actually change color with your body heat. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it's pretty amazing. It is amazing. Pretty amazing stuff. Then he comes a couple years later. He goes, I got this thing, Tommy Bahama. I said, no, it's Bernard, not Bahama. It's Tommy Bernard. He goes, no, I got this better. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, he wants this. Bob Enfield wants this episode called Tommy and Tommy. Tommy B and Tommy B. (laughs) For our golf outing. (laughs) For the golf outing. Right. Exactly. Uh, Where do we start with with Tommy Bahama? Because you were, were you still in the Butler Square building then? No. No, I don't and, think so. Uh, I, I can't remember. Oh, yeah, we we went to uh, Eleven South Twelfth Street. That, yes. that that little yep. brownstone, mm-hmm. and uh, my wife and Renee Sterno. Renee Sterno were, yep. were business partners and had the little office on the corner. He still does, I think. He, he I believe he's still there. And then uh, that pizza joint. That became Buca. Yeah, became Buca de Beppo. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. well, they opened in the basement. Yeah. So it was a kind of a interesting presentation you'd make in that showroom. You know, you you could hear people crying next door, <laughs> and then, then they'd start baking dough. Renee Sterno is a, is a psychologist. In case anybody, probably the best. No, one of the best ever. Yes, you know, he is. Tremendous man. He's helped a lot of people. He certainly has. He's a he's a tremendous guy. I don't want to ask any sensitive questions, but but uh, Bob is is Tommy Bahama still alive? Because I uh, I didn't get a chance to meet him, and uh, <laughs> I never had him on my show. So um, tell me a little bit about Tommy. Uh, he's alive and well in my mind. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff alive and well in your mind. I'll Which explains the psychiatrist well. friend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lori, you believe, you believe the well part? Alive? Yes. I don't know about well. No, not well. No, <laughs> alive. <laughs> And in your mind, for sure. Well, you know, and all that. Uh, he wants to know about Tommy. Yeah, he he, uh, he was born and raised uh, in the Bahamas, obviously. Um, his, his parents owned a coconut plantation. And uh, they were, uh, at the time, had both passed away. 
uh, and uh, t t Tommy inherited the plantation and the island, uh, the, and the, the, this was part of his lifestyle. This is uh, living on an island is what he did every day, and after after they they were gone, he went up to the big house, we'll call it the plantation house, uh -huh. and covered up all the furniture and the pianos and stuff with dust cloths because uh, down near the water, there was a little boathouse with an apartment above it, and that more fit his lifestyle. So he went down to the boathouse and lived in uh, the apartment up on top. And he had uh, <coughs> two cars on the island. <coughs> He had an old Mercedes SL that was in great shape, and he'd use that to run into town on the weekends. And he had a 73 Volkswagen Bug, and he used that. For, he had uh, two surfboards and a half a dozen casting rods in the back of it, and he'd had the top open so often that it wouldn't close anymore. So he'd let half the air out of the tires, and every morning when he'd get up, uh, he'd decide if he was going to go east on the beach or west on the beach, and he'd hmm. get into the Volkswagen and drive down the beach for a mile or two and surf cast. You need a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> you really do. <laughs> so, Lori, he sits around at home and makes his shit up, doesn't he? Does. He does. <laughs> and the story how, how changes a little bit each time. <laughs> I went to the Bahamas to, to seek him out. I looked all over for him. He was in a size medium. Did you look for that? <laughs> really? <laughs> yes, it's a good size medium. It's wonderful size medium. I should point out, and uh, Bella, what are you doing? I don't Bella's know. on the move. Bella the pod dog the is on the move. Be wary. Um, well, the name fits the 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 clothes perfectly because uh, I can go online and go into a store. Uh, my size, you know, type in my size on the internet, tell them my size. It fits perfectly. And I can tell you this. Metafast ads pop right up. <laughs> yeah, <so you're, laughs> that wasn't oh, very wow, nice. You're going down a size, <laughs> really? by the way. So really? you don't have to type in a new size. Oh, really? I he's couldn't not, help it. He's not, gonna, he's not going to talk to you for two days <laughs> now. I hope <laughs> they like those jokes on the moon. <laughs> oh, Zoom. Oh. And that's where you're going. Mom. Just start Sorry. calling her Alice. Just from now Alice. Alice. That's right. Don't say it, Alice. <laughs> Don't say it, Alice. <laughs> Alice is the biggest thing I've ever gotten into. The biggest thing you've ever gotten into are your pants. <laughs> she was the greatest. And, and people, for people who do not know Catherine and me, we are absolutely Ralph and Alice. It, we really are. There's no doubt about that. A lot of times. Baby and the greatest every night. <laughs> In any case. All right, after that uh, knife... Uh, <laughs> removed from my back. <laughs> Mom's saucy today. Watch out As for an her. example. I just came out. <laughs> we wandered in a few years ago to a Valentino store in Las Vegas. We go out and do two shows in Las Vegas every year. And we go into Valentino. And I talked to you about this. As a matter of fact, I called you and talked to you about this. You probably don't even remember. <clears throat> I walk in and Catherine said, you should buy a Valentino sport coat. And I said, yeah, okay. So, so she owns zero sport coats. I had three, zero. two. <laughs> it's very fancy. Three, um, <laughs> zero. So they said, "What size sport coat do you wear?" And I said, "56 long." Right? And they said, "Okay, well that's good." They get a 56 long. They hold it up. 
I got up to my mid, like, forearm. Mid forearm. And my hand wouldn't go any further into this pork. Yeah. It was like 52 <laughs> centimeters, I'm pretty sure. And that's very Bob, tiny. I called Bob. I said, Bob, what the hell? Because, no, they don't, it's not an inch deal. It's like, what is it? It's like centimeters? What is it? It's European sizing. Yeah. Holy crap. There is, I couldn't have worn that thing like when I was a 36 11. short. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like a 36 short. <laughs> Well, how the hell could you not look at me as a salesperson and go, no, yeah, you're not. You're buying it for your child. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I was thinking that. Like, how did the person, like, oh, okay. Is this for a gift, sir? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How did store, or I brand to brand store to store, how do they how, how, how do they get so far off the mark? And I understand Tommy Bahama was made with a very specific buyer in mind. Uh, but, I mean, it, it's made for everybody. It is. It's made for everybody. And what was true 10 or 12 years ago when we were still into what I'll call vanity sizing. <laughs> L medium. Do not spit okay. out oh, that's drink at me. That almost came out on that one. He almost vanity gave me size. back for that. Thanks, Bob. A, a lot of that has diminished over the last 10 or 12 years. <laughs> okay. You know, the, the, the specs have come down. Mm-hmm. Uh, the... the the, the thighs have come in. The sleeves are uh, much it. more tapered than they were, uh, you know, back in the day. But back in the day, the the driver for the – the way the whole world saw the company was we were a floral camp shirt. Right, mm-hmm. right. That, no, that's right. Yeah. Right. What nobody ever understood is that was – if a store bought 100 units from us – that was six units of the hundred, but that was what went in the window because oh, yeah. that was the, that that was the, the speaker for them. Okay. So it was never about camp shirts. It was always about the silk pant and the silk short and the right. silk blazer and you know components that people bought and wore for a long time. Mm-hmm. But the camp shirt was the driver. Right. It was kind of like a high-end Aloha shirt. Yeah. Right? That yeah. told the Life is One Long Weekend story better than right. silk mm-hmm. pants. Right. You know, right. you got to have that in the window or they wouldn't get it. I'm still striving for that, by the way. Just one day to be a weekend, that would be good. There there was a uh, – every five years they hold a convention at, uh, at the um, big coliseums here in town. And uh, 50,000 recovering alcoholics – and uh, prescription drug abusers, whatever. They're all recovering. That's about half the they, people at this date. <laughs> <laughs> 50,000 show up. And so I was a speaker at one of them, and I was walking across and was in Hilton Hotel taking the escalator up. And a kid followed me, about uh, 21 years old. Mr. Shelby, Mr. Shelby, uh, can you stop for a moment? And I got to the top of the landing <clears throat> as we're going on the Skyway. And he said, uh, uh, I wanted to say something. Are you going over to the, over to the Jamboree? And I said, yeah. And he said, I, I want to be there. And I want to tell you that uh, I've got uh, 18 months today. And I want to tell you that you're responsible for my sobriety. And that's what I needed to hear. You know, because you need that pompous, big bag, <laughs> egotist thing triggered right there. So, boom, the buttons were all pressed. and went, thank you very much, oh, uh, son. I hope you, you – know. and he went, yeah, I thought after I saw you on television, I figured if an asshole like him can do it, I can do it too. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, thank you, God. <laughs> thank you for putting that extra message in. That's the day great. now, um, matter of fact, it's five months today, as a matter of fact. Good I, for you. Congratulations. Congratulations. 
I went on the air and talked about the fact that I needed to go and you know seek help for my anger and when I would drink, I'd threaten to kill people, things like that, <laughs> including me, <clears throat> Bob, Lori. <laughs> He threatened to kill me. Yeah, that's not good. No. <laughs> he's making that shit up. Actually, he's not. But anyway, <clears throat> so I go on the air and say, I, yeah, I just want to be public about this because maybe it'll help somebody else. Maybe it won't. But I just there, there's no stigma here. People go through problems, and if you take care of them, that's a great thing. So I'm not going to hide this. And everybody, of course, said, well, it had to be court-ordered. No, it was not court-ordered. <laughs> anyway, says. so I get off the air, <laughs> and... Uh, I called you, I think. Yes. Yeah, I called you. <laughs> and he answers the phone this way. It goes, ring, ring. What the fuck did you do? <laughs> Ta-da. So I'm just here to tell you very quickly, and Don talks about it all the time, uh, yeah, I didn't even realize it's been five months today, and just a, it was a really good decision for me. Because awesome. I still get pissed off every day, but I don't threaten to kill people anymore. <laughs> That's the good news. That's progress. Well, yeah. when Bob and Lori got here, I said, does anyone ever do anything they say they're going to do when they say they're going to do it? And they, no. Uh, never. <laughs> no reason to <laughs> kill never. them, but... <laughs> That's, yeah. a, That's an unreasonable them. expectation, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. Right. Now, we've already talked about the fact... That Tommy Bahama, the great company that it is, huge. What I saw in the paper, five hundred million dollar company. Mm-hmm. I also saw Tintinabulation, which I was very proud of you. <laughs> He's my friend, you know. <laughs> I love that word. Um, but let's talk about what you and Lori do together for Open Arms. Is it's pretty spectacular. Although Lori stiffed us at the dinner. I did. <clears throat> no, you didn't stiff us. Dinner. You didn't. Uh, let's talk about Open Arms because that's one of the big reasons I want you guys to come down here because it's it's a pretty spectacular place. First of all, yeah. I thought it was at the you know the Chambers Hotel for Christ's sake. What a nice place! It's a beautiful building, um, and had I had you guys down three years prior to that, <laughs> you would have said this is really a dump. <laughs> yes, right. It was at an old converted gas station, I think, on Bloomington Avenue, mm-hmm. and we probably had a third of uh, the space to work with that we uh, had today. I think it's a tenth of the space. A tenth? Oh, Lord. We really? we were smashed into this little... <clears throat> it, it worked, but it was getting really ugly. Why you pick up on some of this because you're... you're, you're Closer to the facts and figures than I am. So my 80... You know what we started with and what, what where we're at today. My 80-year-old mother, my 80-something, she won't tell us, your old sister-in-law, and uh, my sister <laughs> and I went every week, and then I went again on a Tuesdays, too, for it's been five years No, But we work in the kitchen, mm-hmm. so you do a two-hour right, shift. Right. And um, that crew of people that are staff, there's a very few staff, mostly volunteers, mm-hmm. like I think 900 they come and go and deliver and make food. And uh, there's so much outreach for more. So many people wanted different diseases, and we just couldn't spread that far. There wasn't enough space or mm-hmm. anything. So um, It started with AIDS back in the day. And then from, 30 years from, ago. From, from, from AIDS. It's, uh, it was 30 years already. That's right. It spread to – it was very small at that, right, at that right, point absolutely. in time. And AIDS was a topic that nobody wanted to talk about. So it, the, the, somebody would prepare sp- special needs meals and, uh, you know, be, be able to deliver these to the homes. Mm. 
and then from AIDS it went from to, to muscular dystrophy, and from muscular dystrophy to cancer, and it it. it it's a, a total different approach than something like uh, a Meals on Wheels or anything like this. Uh, it's uh, all special diets. Um, the, when, when somebody in, in a household gets involved, the whole family gets sick. So the whole family gets fed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and everything's disease-specific. Every household right. gets – if you're on chemo, you need something bland. You know, If you have ALS, you need something soft. So $8 million was raised in the worst economy we've had in I don't know how long. And that building, it was it was two years in March? Two or three. Yeah. And the amount of food that comes out of there is unbelievable. How many meals do you think you prepare? Oh, how many have we repaired? Didn't we just hit two million? Wow. Two, two million. We had a big, so yeah. But, the, you know, the, the chart went like this. Straight recently, and now it's and took going, off. No, straight no. up, <clears throat> right now they're really starting to add up quickly. I mean, you're and not, it's all delivered for free, prepared yeah. for yes. free for the recipients, and the, the, delivered by volunteers. How many volunteers do you have? About nine hundred. We Goodness know that aren't uh, aren't there every day, but some might work for the summer. Some might some work, work a three-hour shift. That's how long it's going to take them to, uh, to deliver what's in their station wagon or in the back seat of their car, and. To, to run their route, right. and then they may not come back until the following Tuesday at two o'clock mm-hmm. to kind of do the same thing. And they 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 build a rapport with the people that they're delivering the meals to. We've heard stories that in some cases that's the only people that uh, the people that, that they see that in are, a day that are or a week. being delivered oh, to really? see. They, you know, they that's their see support. Anybody else that day, and everybody gets a birthday cake hmm. every that's year. Wonderful. I didn't. <laughs> be happy about that. A couple of yeah, you know, and I want to be. The young people don't really understand. I mean, Alex and Andy, you don't really understand that that era that, that the Enfields are talking about. Um, what mom, mom will remember that here? when when AIDS was first discovered to be. I remember the, that when I was a kid, AIDS was a death sentence unless you were. Well, that, no, but I'm talking about when it initially hit. Oh, it was okay. the year you were born, actually. Yeah. It was 1986, 85. Well, it actually hit in like 82, but nobody yeah, really heard it. People were dropping like flies in Manhattan. I remember that. Yeah. But to talk about the special, the special kind of people that would get involved with open arms back then, I had a very, very dear friend that contracted AIDS. And I got, and Catherine will remember this, that I got a call from his family. And they said, would you come over and help bathe him? Because no one will touch him. That's a true story. So all those people that were working for open arms at that time, they may have, they didn't know if they were going to get the disease or not. They had no idea. And that's how special those people were. That's mm-hmm. true. They didn't. I mean, they, no, they right. literally said, no one will touch him. You're right. So, you know, I, I went over and spent the last, uh, what, three days with him before he died? My. That was something else. He was a. Uh, yeah, I, I, to, to go and see AIDS patients, and I, we're talking about 25 years ago, mm-hmm. 27 years ago now. Those are very, very special people. And everybody needs to understand how special those people are, too. How do we make a donation to Open Arms? <clears throat> you give the money to me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> promises. Did that work? <laughs> do not give it to them. <laughs> That's what I love about this podcast. You can be very serious, and then Don will go, you know what? <laughs> but you can bounce around. It's a... Uh, I don't. Know. I like that that the part of doing the podcast a lot. I like a, a lot of things about doing the podcast, but we can 
talk about very serious subjects without being completely maudlin, and then you move on to the next uh, – because we've got to get you guys out of here in a couple of minutes. But So how do you – oh, let me mention one thing before you talk about how, uh, donations. The golf tournament was a ball last year. Went to the golf tournament last Well, thank year. you. Timmy Heron. <laughs> I told the story about a guy in Florida. Did you ever hear this story? Hmm. Very quickly. <clears throat> Timmy Heron calls me. He says, I'm playing in the Honda Classic. He said, come over and walk with me. I said, okay. So we go over to the PGA National. I'm walking along with Timmy, and he gives me a big hug on the course. And he just, Tim's a great guy, really good guy. So we're walking along, and this guy walks up to me. <clears throat> he said, uh, excuse me, could I have your autograph? And there were how many people standing there? A couple of hundred people standing around at, at the Open Arms Tournament last year. He said, may I have your autograph? I said, yeah, you must be from Minnesota. Huh? And he goes, yeah, I'm from Minnesota. So he's talking to me, there, and I'm signing an autograph and all this stuff. And it's the same thing that you're doing. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> so I give him the autograph. And I said, well, thank you very much. He goes, nice to meet you, Mr. Heron. Oh, come on. <laughs> he thought it was Tim's dad. <laughs> An innocent mistake. Yeah. I look just like Carson Heron, man. He thought it was Tim's dad. So I told that story at the Open Arms last year. But, yeah, Tim, uh, a great supporter. Another guy, he works pretty hard. Yes, he does. He does. I just looked on openarmsminnesota.org. Yes. And there's get meals, volunteer, and donate now. Big buttons, can't miss them. Yep. Got it. Openarmsmn.org. Openarmsmn.org. Or Tom Bernard, <laughs> 708 I <laughs> <laughs> Two, three, four. <laughs> oh, thanks, Bob. Oh, great. I we have to get security. We have to run up. I know you guys have to get going, but I, I'm glad we get to talk about. We have to have you back though, because we need to talk more about. It. What I like about that is, and, and it, I don't think it's a menace. What? Your, your wheels are turning so fast you can't I know, even get it out. That's how I am. It's one thing that it, being around a lot of people in my career. To see someone, and again, to start with, you just talk about the fact it's a $500 million company. So what do you do? You go over and help people with open arms. I mean, and you, you do a lot of things for a lot of people that other people don't know about at all. Well, they Secret don't. things. I meant so good I do, things. I do secret things. <laughs> <laughs> I meant good things, not that other shit. <laughs> but you do. And people need to know about that. I think, uh, I think it's a great thing. No question about it. Well, so. We thank you. You've been... Really You've awesome been, and helping us and supporting us. Thank your family. You're one of the reasons that tournament is as much fun as it is. You know, the f- first year we had Tim, the second year we had Tim and Tom and Eric. We can't. Mm-hmm. Chance Don, we've got this guy, and you may have seen bits and pieces of him on the Faraday show. Um, his real name's Eric Nordby, he's a Minnesotan. And he's created a fictional character called Chance Manning. Mm-hmm. Chance Manning's a golf instructor and a real estate agent. So he'll be standing in a tee box at this tournament, and he's wearing knickers and the argyle vest and the tam on his head, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, he waits until someone hits the shot, and he's, oh, I... I, I can see immediately uh, what you've done wrong. And he's got this table of props, like the stuff that's sitting on the table here. He's here, try, try this on. The guy says, well, that's an oven mitt. 
Yeah, that is funny. So the, the, the myth goes on, and surprisingly enough, in about half the situations, the guy hits the ball better than he did originally. With <laughs> the oven mitt. And it gets funnier. Because when it doesn't work, yeah, here, try this on. And the guy makes a swing, and the ball goes in the woods or goes in the water. Chances, let, let, let me look at this is an XL. <laughs> <laughs> what, what tee was he on last year? Was that uh, the 10th? Where were we? The 10th tee. Six, 16. Well, 16, there you yeah. go. Okay. At, uh, yeah, 16 tee. Probably same place this year. Same place this yeah. year? Well, that'll be good. That'll be fun. All right, you guys need to get to, to get out of here. I want you to get to get you out of here on time. Thanks, guys and girls. Thank you. Thank you. Come Thanks for coming in. Come good back again. Here. We can talk, yeah. we can talk Love more to. about a yeah. lot of different things. All Great right. to have you. We'll do it. Now go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, y'all. So sweet. That's the next T-shirt round. No, Bob and Lori, isn't it I've been that- told to go fuck myself by Don Shelby. <laughs> <They're-> <laughs> The listeners of this podcast are learning a part about of Minnesota that they'll never they've never known before. Minnesota mean. Thank you very much Bye. for having me. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Unbelievable. episode number 210 giving us one more episode than there are contendants in the democratic primaries great clips this week laura wasser anita anand and bob m field thanks for listening everybody and we will see you next week